Thank you, Nancy. Uh, my name is Bob. I'm a grateful recovering member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon. I've already had an opportunity to practice my Alanism. I came in here just a minute ago and got my coffee, and somebody was posting a sign up there that said, Coffee Donations Accepted, E-X-C-E-P. I said, well, I don't have to con- contribute. And I said, uh, it's got to change. I see it says Coffee Donations Welcome back there now. So. <laughs> I need to thank uh, Liz for inviting me and for Nancy, uh, who's graciously hosted me. And I was just sitting here a minute ago and saying, well, God's got a sense of humor because my first wife was named Liz and my second wife was named, guess, Nancy. <laughs> and like Terry said this morning, we love alcoholics. And I've married three of them. So that tells that tells you a little bit about my obsession. My obsession is to the alcoholic and not and not to alcohol. Uh, also, when you speak at these conferences, well, we've been fortunate today. We got two Al-Anon speakers, but often I speak at these these uh, conferences, and you're the only Al-Anon speaker. And and I noticed the people up here today have been giving their serenity date. We call it serenity rather than sobriety, but every time I speak at an AA conference, I get a sort of a identity crisis, and I think, well, I ought to identify myself as my name is Bob Frey, and through the grace of God, good good sponsorship, uh, the program, the steps, I haven't found it necessary to manage, manipulate, or control since Easter Sunday of 1983. (laughs) And that, that too gives you, you know, gives you the idea that what we have, what our obsession is, you know, to take care of things. And that's what I've been doing all my life is taking care of my thing, of things. Take care of everybody but yourself. But that's, uh, you gotta take care of the alcoholics and, uh, whether they want to be taken care of or not, you know, they tell a story about how many alcoholics does it take to, uh, put in a light bulb, and you say, well, it takes two. It takes one to screw it in, and the other one to get drunk so the room will spin. <laughs> then you say, how many Alanons does it take? It doesn't take any. We just detach, and it screws itself in. It's <laughs> well, so that, sometimes that's uh, all my life. As they say, the boy is father of a man, and, and my life began uh, in Michigan as a boy. I grew up there. I was the youngest in a family of four. Uh, there's no, in, in our family, there was no uh, motion shown. Uh, there was, I, I didn't think my parents loved me. It was a very, I hate to use the term, but it's a very dysfunctional family. There wasn't any drinking, but it had all of the other aspects of alcoholic thinking. And I understand today that uh, alcoholism, you know, affects both the drinker and the non-drinker. And our family was very dysfunctional. They didn't they didn't hug, they didn't uh, uh, touch each other. Uh, they said there must have been some affection in the family. There were four of us, but I've been told you don't need that to have children. <laughs> but my father was a functional illiterate. 
He didn't read or write. And my mother had one year of college. And how they ever got together, I, I don't know to this date. That's one of those secrets that we have in our families. We don't talk about those things, and it never was talked about. I knew that both of my parents had been married in an earlier life, but they didn't talk about that either. The only message I got is that that uh, divorce was wrong. So I've been through two of them. <laughs> yeah. They also, I, I wanted, I wanted the. Uh, I wanted affection. I wanted love. I wanted somebody to tell me that. I guess that's been a problem all my life. I wanted to be loved. And, uh, but nobody told me that. In fact, I went to, I can remember going to a neighbor's house once and the husband came home and his wife gave him a hug. And I was embarrassed because I thought that was something that was reserved for the bedroom. I, I just did, couldn't understand that. Today, uh, it's one of the joys of, of the program is getting all the, as many hugs. We need a lot of them. I, I, I notice when I'm traveling and you're in airports and you see people hugging each other, and I, it makes me feel good to see that and, and just people telling each other they love each other. And, and that's something that I never got for many years. I, I couldn't tell my children I even loved them. And today now when I talk to them or I see them, I can hug them and I can say I love you. The... As a, growing up, I, I again, I, I was um, I was an overachiever in the family. I, I was a good student. I was uh, I was uh, a Boy Scout. I was an Eagle Scout, and I often think of the story of the Scout who who was walking. He's standing on the corner, and his little old lady standing on the corner, and he takes her arm and he takes her across the street, and she says, "Well, I don't want to go across the street." And he says, well, you got to go across the street because I need to do a good deed today. <laughs> and that's that's what I did. I I needed to do my good deed. I needed to feel good so I could feel good by taking care of you, whether you want to be taken care of or not. <laughs> and we we don't we we capture. We don't love people. We capture them. And and we it's it's I've come to understand it's conditional love. We take care of them. We do all these things. For them, but we expect them to do what we tell them to do. And, uh, in fact, when I was out there dating, I was more apt to tell, if I was dating, I was more apt to tell my date that, not that I loved her, but I would be more apt to say, I need to take care of you. Now, to a certain type of woman, they love to hear that, you know, I'm going to take care of you. Well, <laughs> that's, uh, but that that's was my men, my mental state at that thing. That love was equivalent as I grew up was taking care of you, and that's what I thought I had to do to be a good person was to take care of you. Well, as when I, as I said, when I grew up, I was an overachiever uh, in high school. I I graduated about third in my class, and I was uh, played football and and was president of uh, of the student council and all these things. And I went on. Uh, it just carried on from there. But at the same time that I was doing all these things, I also liked to, there were a bunch of kids around, they were the ones who were the underachievers, but they were having a lot of fun. They were living on the edge, they were drinking beer and, and having fun, and, and uh, I thought that they were a lot of fun people to be with. They were on the edge all the time. Now, living on the edge, and that's what the, the alcoholics do. They live on the edge. I saw a bumper sticker the other day, and it said, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. <laughs> but it's our job. 
always my job was I, I loved to get out there on the edge, but I, I, my job was to keep them from falling over, falling over the edge. And it, it gets exciting, but it, it gets old after a while. And, uh, but in high school, I, they would, um, my friends would get me to go out and buy the beer. I had a receding hairline at that time. You notice it's still, it's finished receding. <laughs> that's really not a bald head. That's a solar panel for a sex machine. <laughs> but, but they would, they would invite me out. They would invite me out and they'd say, well, you've got to buy the beer. And I'd go up to these liquor stores and I'd put my head down. And so they'd see the bald head and I was scared to death. But I, I would buy that for them, and I'd bring it back, and they were I got I was accepted then. And then I would help them. Then we'd go out and they drink, and I never drinking always put me to sleep after a couple of drinks. But but I would help them, and they if they got drunk, I'd take them home and cover up for them, make excuses for them. So I was practicing that at an early age. And then in college, it, I was doing the same things. I I. Uh, I loved to, I was an overachiever again, but then again, I, I liked to, to be with the crowd that was what I thought was living it up. And, uh, it was almost you had to go underground to study and, and I didn't like them to know that I, I was a good student. <laughs> it was like you wouldn't be accepted if they knew that you were, that you uh, were smart. And, uh, the about the my last year in college, I got to be a senior in college, and you know they talk about Terry talked about the American dream. You know, you grow up, uh, you find a wife, and you have that 2.2 children in a little cottage with a white trellis with roses growing up the side. You know, uh, and so I started thinking, well, that's what I need to be complete. I I need that. So I'm looking around for a her, and uh, I've come to understand you don't need a he or a her in your life to be complete, but in those days, I thought that was the way you had to have it to be complete. So I go into the student center one day, and they needed a fourth for bridge, and uh, I sat down and met my first wife, Liz, who was who was skipping class. She was about ready to flunk out of school. She was partying. She was just having a good time. And uh, this was right up my alley. I could take care of this. So I was going to straighten, straighten her life around. And uh, so I t- took her in tow, and we dated, and we carried on uh, a relationship. Uh, when I graduated, I got she was able to... Uh, start studying and, and it to achieve and, and she continued to in undergraduate school and I went off to law school. And uh, then we uh after three years when we both graduated uh we got married and, and went off to Chicago to live and so we said we went off into the sunshine and uh we were going to have that cottage and that two point two children. And uh in those early years, um, I really didn't know what was going on. And uh, we talk about denial as being a disease of denial. Even if someone had stuck it in front of me, I wouldn't have understand what was going on. My wife was a closet drinker, and I didn't know what a closet drinker is. She told me her mother was a closet drinker, so I should have understood, uh, but uh, I didn't. And uh, the... 
she would, uh, even after I got on this program, uh, my oldest daughter on her honeymoon went to see her mother. And her mother uh, said to her, she said, well, you know, the biggest problem I had when I was with your father was uh, alcohol. And when my daughter came back and told me that, I said, alcohol? I didn't drink that much. <laughs> she says, no, not you, her. And that was, it came as a revelation to me. But she was, this was, she was an alcohol, uh, was a uh, closet drinker. Now, in those days, she had these problems, and we recognized that. So she went off to see the psychiatrist, and I'd asked her, I said, what do you talk to the psychiatrist about? And she says, well, if you're so interested, call him up and ask him. Well, I didn't want to call him up and ask him. I was afraid he might tell me there was something wrong with me, and I knew there wasn't anything wrong with me, but it was just something wrong with her, and as soon as we found that out, we'd get that fixed. And uh, eventually we had two little girls out of that out of that relationship. And uh, one thing led to another, and, and uh, we'd, I'd thought that it would be best that we have a geographical, if I felt since Chicago was her home, that if we got out of there, everything would be fine. You know what fine is? Followed up, insecure, neurotic, and egotistical. And uh, if you'd asked me in those days, I would have told you I was fine. Today, I'd like to tell you, if you ask me, I'll tell you I'm great, which to me means grateful, recovering, enthusiastic Alamon today. But in those those days, uh, we well, when we left Chicago, we came to Cincinnati. And uh, I lived here in Cincinnati for about six years, and uh, I always thought Cincinnati would be a great place to live, but I, I didn't have time. I was too busy taking care of everything. <laughs> and I was taking care of that wife, and things, things didn't get any better, and uh, I was taking care of these uh, my two little girls, and uh, there were a lot of crazy things happened that, that don't need to be re- Repeated uh, because you know, all it would show is is uh, my sickness, and uh, it's it's sort of you know it, it's sort of a spirituality is dead at that particular time. I knew there was a God back to the time when I was a boy growing up in Michigan. It was during the Second World War, and we lived next to a we lived next to the uh, Methodist church, and, and we lived in this home that was owned by the church, and my folks got their rent-free for taking care of the church. And my two oldest brothers were in the service, and and uh, my father was working in the defense industry, so it fell on my mother and myself to take care of the church, and we'd clean it up. And early Sunday morning, I'd get up there, and I'd get the, the furnace uh Going and I would walk around that dark church, uh, here for a young, I was probably 12, 13 in that area and I'm walking around the church in the early morning and it's kind of eerie and I would come to the, come to the altar and there was the light there and I would get down on my knees. I was kind of frightened with it all. I'd get down on my knees and, and I'd pray to God and I'd say, God, what do you want me to do with my life? And there was no, you know, there was no burning bush or Pauline lights, you know, nothing happened. God didn't, you know, God didn't speak to me. So, the message I've gotten was a lot like the message that Terry was talking about this morning. I got, yeah, there was a God out there, but but uh, he was too busy to take care of me. And uh, he endowed me with a mind and, and certain things, and it was my job then to go out and take care of other people. <laughs> and to help God. 
You know? Well, I've come to understand I'm not the senior partner in that help deal. And that, that God is, God takes care of that. But in those particular, in those particular years, it was kind of frightening. And, and growing up, I always, and even on into my, uh, first marriage, I knew there was a God out there. And I went to church. I took my children to church. But I always felt that, uh, in my agnostic, I was an agnostic. And in that, I thought that, you know, my God, uh, just didn't have time for me, and I had to take care of things. And uh, I've come to understand, you know, with that in the, with that first step, in that first step, the we say we're we're powerless over alcohol, and our life's unmanageable. Well, when I first came in here, that first part being powerless over alcohol, I thought that meant you couldn't hold your booze, and I didn't have any problem with that. But uh, that second part, your life is unmanageable, and my life was unmanageable. And I've come to understand that, that that second part, the unmanageability of my life, is a permanent thing. And so I understand that that with the acceptance of the fact that I'm powerless, it's rather frightening when you think about the, that if you're powerless. I've been raised all my life to, to be told that I could do anything I wanted if I just I just uh, applied myself, and it pretty much. Uh, happened. I worked my way through college and I did all these things. I was sort of a self-made man. That's, that's not so good when you say my best efforts got me to where I was. And, uh, but I, I, I've come to understand with that first step, you know, standing alone, accepting the fact that you're powerless. I don't think I could grasp it until I had that second step there to, to, uh, take care of me. And that when you get the faith, and the hope of the second step where it says there's a power greater than yourself out there that can restore you to sanity, then I can accept the fact that I'm powerless because there is that power out there and that power is greater than myself. I, I, where I keep the thing in perspective, I like to say that there's an unwritten step between one and two, and that is I'm not him. <laughs> and so if you keep that in mind... Then, then you keep it in perspective that you're, that you're, you're powerless, and then the second step that there's a power greater than yourself, and it doesn't matter what that power is, it doesn't matter what you consider it, when you first come in, it can be the group, it can be your sponsor, it can be, uh, any number of things, a tree, a telephone pole. I had a friend who said he had a concept of a, of a, high, a great higher power in a, in a, in a light pole. And then he saw a dog doing the job on the light pole, and he decided he'd better get a different concept for a higher power. But you go on from the second step to that third step, which I call commitment. He says you turn your life and your will over to God, or to, the, to as you understand him. And you, you turn it over not just once, but for me, I have to turn it over on a day-to-day basis. I have to, to as I do each day. When I begin my day, I begin it with, with the fact that I have to turn my life and will over to God. It says in that third step, it says that you, that you, uh, that you make a decision. You know, in the decision part, a lot of people say all I have to do is make a decision, but it's like the story about four frogs on a log and one of them says, I think I'll jump in. You say, well, how many frogs you got? Well, you still, you still got four, because all that's been made is a decision. 
Nothing's happened since then. And so just because you make a decision to turn your life and your will over, if you don't do something about it, that's the second part you have to make. You have to go further from that decision. There's another story that goes along in that third step about the chicken chicken and the uh, uh, pig that are walking down a country road, and they're having a discussion about life in general as chicken and pigs are apt to do. And they come to they come to a country church, and they see a banner on a country church, and it says, Feed the Poor. And so... The, the chicken said to the pig, that's a good idea. And the pig says, yeah, you got any ideas? And the chicken thought for a minute. She said, yes, we could feed them ham and eggs. <laughs> and the pig thought about that for a minute. And he says, you know, for you, that's a decision. But for me, that's a real commitment. <laughs> so the question, the question comes, are you going to be a chicken or are you going to be a pig? <laughs> But that, to me, is the first three steps, and we call it the Al-Anon Waltz, one, two, three, one, two, three. And I have to work that on a daily basis. And uh, that's where I keep myself on a daily basis with the first three steps. But I'm sort of digressing from my story. Back to my first marriage and, and, and my life here in Cincinnati, and finally came a day where where uh, I was going to leave Cincinnati and go to Louisville. I'd accepted a job down there, and my wife, at that particular time, things were not good. We lived, it was uh, it was a, a nightmare as I think about it. I, she was drinking, but I didn't know it. Just that she was awfully weird, and the doctors weren't helping her. And she'd go into to the hospital, she'd tra- uh, and th- things... She didn't even go down to Louisville to pick the house out. I went down with my two daughters, and, and we, we found a house. And uh, she moved down to Louisville with us, but only was there a month. And uh, after a little time in the hospital, her mother came, and, and she left me. She went home with her mother. Both of my wives left me. I'd like to tell you I threw them both out. But, uh, you know, we get this, they didn't, they both left me, left to my own devices, I'd still be there trying to keep it together. And, and, uh, they, we have this fear of abandonment. And even though we know this is intellectually, we know that this is a bad deal, we, our egos or whatever it is won't allow us to admit that this thing is dead. And we can't do anything more about it. When I came to Al-Anon, and I came to Al-Anon in the middle of my second marriage so that you people would tell me it was all right to get rid of this bitch. <laughs> and, uh, but you didn't. You told me that Al-Anon does not save marriages, it saves people. And so there I was with my two daughters. I had a, one was eight and the other one was twelve. And I'm taking care of them, and and my wife has gone off to her mother, and uh, I was Mr. Mom, and uh, that was right up my alley again. Everybody said, "How do you do that?" You know, I said, "Oh, you know, it's the Alamon salute." Oh, it's it's okay. I I can take care of all of this. I'm I got broad shoulders, and I'll take care of these things, and I'll raise these girls like they're supposed to be raised, and all this stuff. And, uh, so I would, I was doing that and, and somebody told me how to put an ad in the newspaper and get, uh, get a, uh, a 
full-time housekeeper because I was hiring them from the from the uh, agencies. And so I put an ad in the newspaper. I had about 50 women respond to this thing, and I interviewed a bunch of them. And we had a family we had a family conference. And one of the women I met, uh, she uh, said her husband was an alcoholic, and he'd beaten her up the night before. And she ran out of the apartment. She was a nurse, and she ran out of the apartment with just a, a paper bag with her daughter, she had a six-year-old daughter, and she just had the paper bag full of the child's clothes, and she just had the clothes on her back, and she said, I need to get out away from him. So we had a little family conference, and we brought her in. Hired, I hired her as a housekeeper. <laughs> Within a week, we were playing house. So, <laughs> so uh, we... Uh, Told our children we were married. Uh, I was still married, and 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 she was still married. And I th- I think the word for it is adultery, but uh, I don't think even uh, our president understands that. <laughs> Jeez, I'm away from Zippergate for a while. <laughs> but. Uh, we were living together, and we told the kids, we told them that we were married, and and for a year we were getting these divorces, and it took some time, and and I know she was very uncomfortable. She kept saying to me, she says, you're the lawyer, you should be able to get this, and I said, well, this takes time. Well, it took us about a year, and then finally when we, when our, our divorces became complete, we ran across the river to Indiana and got married by J.P., and... Uh, Never, uh, never told our children the difference because they thought we were had. Well, at least we told them we had been married for a period of time. Well, that that marriage was that lady was uh, had both an alcohol and uh, a drug problem, and and a lot of crazy things happened. And I tell these things not to take her inventory, but to show you how sick I was. And uh, when I look back at it, they were pretty. Some of those things were pretty exciting, but they they. Uh, she worked in chemical dependency as a nurse, and I went to my first AA meeting with her. And all I can remember with that AA meeting, she went. She had to take some of her clients from the the hospital she was working at, and all I can remember was the smoke and the coffee, you know. And uh, but there was one. There was a woman speaker that night. And uh, she was from Fort Knox, and and she talked. She was an alcoholic, but she talked about and her husband was one too. And she talked about her feelings and everything. And and I rel- and I can think back at that time, and I related to some of the things that she said. You know, this disease of alcoholism is a disease of frozen feelings, and whatever can unfreeze those and and make you your feelings don't necessarily have to be right or wrong, but you need to feel them. You have to feel the things that are happening to you. Well, uh, as I said, a lot of crazy things happen. Well, she uh, she bought a gun because she thought she needed uh, the protection. And, and one day we're sitting on the couch in our living room, and she's cleaning this gun, and she's got the ammunition, and she's sitting there. And I'm sitting there trying to reason with her in my inmanical way that... Uh, why she doesn't need this gun, and I'm telling her all of these reasons, and she pointed the, finally she pointed a gun to my head, and she says, shut up. <laughs> Talk about spiritual awakenings. Yeah. <laughs> and then she pointed the gun towards the ceiling, only I didn't know it, she pulled the trigger, and it went off right by my head. 
and I wet my pants. And uh, I uh, there's a big hole in the ceiling, and I left that hole for some time. And about a year later, I found the gun, and I took it down to the Ohio River, and I threw it in the river. And I felt so good. I came back and I told somebody about that. And they said, well, what took you so long? It took you a year to do it. And I said, well, that gun belongs to her. I wouldn't want to hurt her feelings. <laughs> and that's the way we are in this, you know, in this illness. that we, we put up with a lot of things because we don't want to rock the boat. And then there was another time where she... We had been talking about death and, and the right to die, and so she uh, she was uh, up in her room drinking, and, and I'm wandering around the house, and I, and I came up there after a while, and she said, well, I've done it. And I said, done what? And she says, well, I've taken my life. Now, she worked as a nurse, and she had a mason jar full of pills that she just took all kinds of pills when they were surplus or she was stealing them, I don't know which, but she had this big mason jar full of pills and she said, I've taken all these pills. I'm mending it all. And uh, so I said, well, i got to call EMS. And she says, no. She says, remember you, when we talked about this, you told me that it was, that I had a right to die. And I thought about that and I says, well, Maybe that's right. Maybe this is the way this is all going to end. Maybe this is God's answering my prayers. <laughs> and uh, I watched her, and her speech started slurring, and her eyes got glassy, and, and she just laid down in the bed, passed out. And I laid down beside her on that bed, and I said, well, this is okay. Uh, and I started planning her funeral. And I I picked out her casket and I wrote her obituary and I I figured out where I'm going to bury her and, and what I'm going to tell all the relatives. And, and I went peacefully to sleep and uh, slept less than an hour. And when I woke up, I realized how crazy all this was. And she's still breathing uh, very catchedly, but she was breathing. And so I got her up and put some coffee into her and got her to the hospital and they pumped her stomach and... Thank God she was okay. But, you know, when you look back at that, and it's so insane when you talk about that today, but at the time I was going through it, it just seemed logical to me. It just seemed like the right thing. And that's what this disease does to you. And there were a couple other things that happened in that relationship which I don't like to talk about. And uh, one was the infidelities. And uh, she had these affairs, and then she would come back and tell me about them. And the first time she did, I, I put my fist through the wall. My male ego was really hurting at this one, you know, that we have so a lot of times this double standard, which I don't believe in, but the, the males, a lot of males think it's all right for them to run around and have these affairs, but not for the female. And uh, here I was, she was out doing these things, and she would tell me about it. And my first reaction was I should throw her out. And then I, my ego again would catch hold, and I'd say, well, there's got to be something wrong with you. Because if there wasn't something wrong with you, she wouldn't have to go out and do this. Today I understand she was taking care of what her, her perceived needs were and had nothing to do with me. But in those days... I felt there was something sorely wrong with me, and so consequently I just would have to work hard, and I knew that if I worked hard, if I read, if I studied, uh, if 
was better husband, better lover, better anything, that she wouldn't have to go do this. And things would work out for a while, and then something would happen, and, and it would start all over again. So I figured out how I was really going to fix her so that she wouldn't have to do this. And she had a girlfriend she ran around with. And so I propositioned the girlfriend and took her to New York City with me on a business trip and uh, seduced her and came back, and I couldn't get home fast enough so I could come home and tell my wife what I'd done, <laughs> and which I did. Things didn't get any better. <laughs> so any of you out there have ideas like that, don't. Things just didn't get any better. One of the other things that was happening in that relationship, which I don't like to talk about, is, is, is with my daughters. So I said I had these two daughters from my first marriage, and, and um, this wife came to me, and she says, you've got to get rid of these girls. She says, when you get married, you either make an election to, to stay with your wife or with your children. And I had that she demanded I make that decision. And so I, and, and I don't like to, you know, I, I, it bothers me when I say that I made that decision to, to stay with her and to get the children out of my life. And I've tried to make amends since then, but my oldest daughter, right after she got out of high school, she knew she needed to get out of the house and she joined the army. I can still see her today as she, with her little duffel bag going, and I dropped her off at the federal building in, in Louisville, and she went off to the Army for three years. Well, today she's in this program. She's in the AA, and uh, she has uh, two beautiful daughters. And, uh, and, and so, so her life... Uh, I've tried to make some amends. The other, the other daughter, the younger daughter, I, at an early age, when she was still home, uh, I sent her off to Michigan to, to live with my sister. And she went to school in Michigan and today she's a, she's a PhD. She's a, a doctor. She has her doctorate and is a professor at Auburn University. But she's married to another Ph.D., and she has two little boys. And the best thing about that, you know how God works. I thought at the time when I sent her away, that broke my heart. But, you know, it really got her out of all of that craziness that was going on in my home at that time. Today she seems to understand, you know, it always amazes me how people, uh, outsiders, they understand these things which we have to work on to understand. She just innately knows this. And uh, a couple of years ago, when she was interviewing for this job at at Auburn, she called me up and she said, um, how would you like to, she said, I'd like to proposition you. How would you like to come to Boston where they were living and babysit your grandsons for a couple of, uh, for a week while we go, she and her husband had to go to, to Auburn to, for this interview and she wasn't, she said she didn't feel uh, comfortable with ever having anybody else. Her mother-in-law usually sat and she was busy. So I talked to my wife and I said, uh, uh, I told her about this and she, and Camille said, well, I can't, she said, I can't do that, but why don't you go? She said, you know, there's male bonding and all that stuff. You might enjoy it. 
So I went off to Boston for a week, and this one of the son, one of the grandsons was six, and the other one was four. And uh, I took care of them for a week, and we had a we had a ball. They loved to ride the subway, so we rode the subway every day. But on on Sunday, my daughter, being uh, being my daughter, had made this list of things for me to do, and one of the things was taking to Sunday school on Sunday, and. Uh, so she told me how to get to this church, and I got them there, and I put them in the Sunday school class, and then I went and sat down in the sanctuary. And this is what I used to do years ago when my daughters were were that age. I would take them to Sunday school, and I would go sit in church. And I went and sat in that church, in that sanctuary, and all of a sudden I started crying. And all that pain and anger loneliness, all of those things from my past 25 years ago came back to me. But you know, the beauty of that, it only lasted about 20, 25 seconds because I stopped crying and I said, you don't live there anymore. You don't have to cry about this. Your life's, your life is different today. And, and it just went away. And that's what, to me, one of the, the, grandest things that the program has done for me is to teach me that I don't have to live that way anymore. And it made that experience a much more, I don't want to forget where I've been, but I don't have to live there anymore. And that's a real healing thing. Well, this this wife, uh, things didn't get any better. And uh, she had this daughter, and the daughter was 16, and she came to me and said, uh, this girl's an alcoholic, and we got to send her to treatment. Well, we couldn't send her to in Louisville because uh, that wife was working in the juvenile treatment center at that time, so we sent her off to Chattanooga. And she was in Chattanooga in treatment for about two weeks, and she kept confronting her mother as to when what her mother was going to do about her drug and alcohol problem. So finally... Her mother, after two or three weeks, announced to me, she says, I'm going to treatment. And so I put her on an airplane. She flew down to Chattanooga to the same treatment center. So both she and her daughter were in this treatment center. And so came came family week, and, and they uh, I was invited to go down for family week. So I drove down to, to Chattanooga, and, and uh, the first night I'm there, this wife and a counselor confronted me, and she says, you're an alcoholic. You gotta to go to treatment. If you don't go to treatment, we're all through. And I says, well, I didn't know I was an alcoholic, but whatever it takes to get you sober, I'll do it. Now, I think they call that codependence, but I, but I, I, I said, uh, whatever it takes, I called up my boss and I said, well, they tell me I'm an alcoholic. And he said, well, I didn't know you were an alcoholic. And I said, I didn't know I was an alcoholic either. And uh, after uh, af- after a week or so, the daughter got out, and then uh, following that, all, in the middle of the night, my wife booked. She just took off. She grabbed her clothes, and she was gone. And the counselors there, they they confronted me, and they said, well, they thought I had been conspiring with her to, so that she could leave. And I said, I haven't talked to her in days. And um, so my counselor said to me, he says, well, he says, I don't know whether you're an alcoholic or not, but that's that's up to you. But he said, I will tell you, unless you do something about your obsession for this woman, you'll never get well. You know, in our obsession, 
we get to the point, at least it was for me, I would wake up in the morning and I would ask this woman how she felt. And if she said she felt fine, then I felt fine. If she told me she felt lousy, then I felt lousy. Because it was as if her blood ran through my veins. And I was responsible for this. And that, and so when, so when they, when uh, he told me that, he said also, he says, you'll hear from her. And you have to des- decide what you're going to do. And I was scared to death. And the first time she called, I refused to take the call. And the second, next t- night she called, and and I took the call. And she said, you've got to get out of that place. She says, well, screw your mind up. She says, you're not an alcoholic. And she says, I'll come and get you. And I said, well, I don't know if I want to leave. And she says, look, you've got to leave. If you don't leave, we're all through. And I said, well, wait a minute. First you told me I was an alcoholic, and if I didn't go to treatment, we're all through. Now you're telling me I'm not an alcoholic, and if I don't leave, we're all through. And she says, yes. <laughs> And I was scared to death. And I said to her, I said, no, I'm going to stay here. You do what you need to do to take care of yourself, because I'm going to stay here. And that was the first time I ever said no. I often say, well, I'm glad I'm not a woman. I've been pregnant all the time, because I don't know how to say no. <laughs> but I said no to her, and and I was frightened. I didn't. She says, well, I'm leaving. And I was scared to death. And, uh, so I, but I stayed in that place. And I knew, I knew I really wasn't an alcoholic, but I told him I was an alcoholic because I also knew my insurance wasn't going to pay for it unless I told him I was an alcoholic. <laughs> I've had to deal with that, you know, this is a program of honesty. And, uh, I've dealt with that and I've talked about it and, and, and reasoned it out. And really I did get treatment for alcoholism. And I, I feel comfortable today with the fact that I was treated for alcoholism. I was one of those fortunate people because ordinarily treatment is not granted to to uh, non-alcoholics. But of course, I'm an example. What anybody can get treatment if they got the money. <laughs> but uh, after after five weeks of that, I I left and I went home. I was cured, and uh, of course she uh, had she had moved out. But since I'd been cured, I moved her back in. And uh, I went out and broke her lease. She'd t- taken a lease and moved, and I, I got her back in. And, and uh, there were some differences, though. I, the, I, I said there's going to be some different rules here. And she was going to AA at the time, and uh, I knew where I belonged. And I, I, had, I had come to Al-Anon by that time, and I beat a track to Al-Anon, and I knew that's where I belonged. And after about... Uh, four or five months later, she just up and left me and sued me for divorce. And as I said earlier, you know, I didn't throw her out, uh, but because you had that feeling, even though it's bad, you think it's going to be worse. But she left and divorced me. And by this time, I was in the Al-Anon, and I had a sponsor, and my sponsor says, you don't need a woman to make you a whole. He says, what you need to do is stay away from those women. They get you in trouble. He said, what you need to do is to work these steps, get involved in the program, do service work, do all of the things that the program tells you to do, go to a lot of meetings. And so I did this. And he also told me at that time, is that he said, you need to volunteer. He said, the first Al-Anon International was going to be held in, in uh, Montreal, 
uh, in, it was in July of 95, and he said, you need to sign up for that and, and volunteer to, to be on a workshop or something. So I did that. And when the time came, it was fortunate I had done that because I probably would not have gone. I'd made all the reservations, but I probably would not have gone but for the fact that I had committed to be on a, on a panel up there. So that morning when I took off from Montreal, the flights were all screwed up and I ended up in Boston. Uh, uh, my flights, were, they rerouted me all over the country and I got to Boston on a flight to Boston to Montreal on an airline I've never heard of before or since, and I call it God's Airline. Because I got on that airline, there weren't many people on it out of Boston. There was a young lady sitting next to me, and I started talking to her. She had her knee in a walking cast, and she couldn't walk very well. And I started talking to her, and she was from Denver. And I said, where are you going? She said, uh, Montreal. I said, what are you going to Montreal for? And she said, convention. I said, A.A. or Elanon. She said, A.A. I said, I'm one of the others. And so, as we talked further, uh, it turned out she was um, staying in the same hotel I'm staying in. I said, well, this is right up my alley here. I said, well, I'll get a wheelchair for you. We'll get you through customs, and I'll get your bags, and you can share a cab and take you down to the hotel. I said, she thought that was okay, so we uh, we threw the... We got through customs, and we went down to the hotel, and she was staying in the floor above me with about ten women from from Denver, and I was in a room right on the floor below, and I, so I threw my bag in the, in the, uh, my room, and I went upstairs with her, and when I got up there, all these women were, they were running around as, all in the dither like alcoholic women do, and, uh, I said, what's the problem? I'll fix it. <laughs> and they said, they were short one bed. They'd set this up, and, and uh, they were one bed short. And, there were, of course, there was no rooms left in the city or in the hotel. And so they didn't know where they were going to sleep with these two women. I said, well, i got two beds in my room. I said, I'll share one of my beds. Well, I think I had different ideas than they had, but they, they, sent, two of their, they sent two of their elderly contingent down to... <laughs> One one lady ran the central office in in Denver, and the other lady, bless her soul, who was was about in her seventies then, and she just uh, recently died. And uh, but after after the four or five days she stayed there, she gave me a wad of cotton, and she said uh, this in the serenity prayer got me through your snoring. <laughs> Keith knows about that. <laughs> Brought Keith along with me, uh, and I warned him. I said, "You're going to share a room with me. You better get earplugs." So yeah, I haven't heard any complaints today, so I guess I'm okay. Where his earplugs work. But uh, that lady, that lady I met uh, on the airplane, she invited me to come out to Denver, and and we started a long distance uh, relationship. Uh, we were 2,000 miles away, and, and God must have figured it out that way because we became friends before we became lovers. And uh, that lady is my wife today, and we've been married almost 11 years. And uh, my wife, Camille, I spoke to her this morning, and she has a lot of friends here, and she said uh, to tell everyone she said hello and she loves you. Uh, she, we didn't, we, for two years we carried this relationship on, and, and she... Um, Finally, uh, she came out to Louisville to see me, and she was active in horses, and she went to see a vet 
in Louisville, and he offered her a job. And she said to me, she said, well, she said, I don't know what to do. She was in graduate school, and she said, I don't know what to do. And I said, well, you can come live with me. And she said, she said, I've lived with a man for eight years, and I made up my mind I was never going to live with someone, a man again, unless I married him. And I said, whoa. I said, I've been married to two alcoholics, and I, and I said, I'm not about to get married again, and I'm not about to marry another alcoholic. So we compromised and got married. <laughs> so it's been a, it's been an adventure. Uh, it's been an adventure, and and uh, my life today. I, if you'd asked me 15 years ago what I wanted out of life, I would have sold myself far short. Because my life today is better than I've ever had it. I, I my marriage. Uh, my relationship with my children, my wife is my best friend. We we fortunate in the sense that we get to do some of these conferences together. And uh, she's not here today, and I miss her, but that's okay because I don't need to take care of her. She wouldn't allow me to do it if I wanted to. Anyway, <laughs> but that's you know that's a big job if you're responsible for another person. And uh, we sometimes, if you think you've got to be responsible for another person, that's acting as God in the life of someone else. There's a story told about uh, a minister. You know, he's out there doing the gospel, and he's praying to God one night, and he says, God, you're not doing your job. Here I'm out there working all the time, doing your will, and and, and you're not helping. You're not carrying your part. And God says... Uh, we said, oh, yes, I am. He says, uh, he says, no, you're not. He says, I'm out there working hard. He said, well, you're out there doing my work in your name. And instead of my work in my name. And he says, preacher says, what's the difference? God says, results. <laughs> and so they, if we're out there trying to take care of everyone, we're really, you know, they say, uh, turn it over to God. When in those cases, we're acting as God. And that gets us into a lot of problems. And uh, in my today, well, we we uh, after we had been married several years, the my employer of uh, 22 years uh, asked me to go to California to do what I was doing out in California, but at the same salary I was making in in Louisville. And and uh, Camille and I we did an inventory on that to see whether the good and bad parts of doing that, and the only good thing we got on it was the program on Southern California. And so we decided that uh, we were going to stay in Louisville, and when I told my employer that, my employer said uh, uh, they were unhappy, and they said, well, we think you want to retire. And so I said, well, I didn't know I wanted to retire, and they said, yeah, and we even set the date for you, six months from the date. <laughs> and so uh, I went talked to my talked to my sponsor about that and he says well he says it's all ego and uh, so I I just sort of accepted it and, and you know uh, things are okay sometimes uh, after that I, I had an opportunity to teach in a over in Indiana for for a couple of years and then I associated with a law firm where I am today in, in Louisville and things work out work out much better than, than we could plan that. And uh, we, you know, if we live just on a day-to-day -day basis, things, 
as as Terry was talking about this morning, about we'll be all right. And I've learned that we're a newcomer coming into the program, that the best thing that I can tell that newcomer, if I tell them nothing else except come back, but try to get to make them understand that they will be okay. Regardless of what happens, they will be okay. You will be okay. And that comes from, comes from the faith of living one day at a time. Each day that I get up and I look at my calendar and I say, well, what is the day? The day is January 31st, 1998. It's the only January 31st, 1998 I'll ever have. And so I have to make the best of what I have today. And each morning when I, have my time for prayer and meditation, I say, God, what, what's out there for me today? What, what thing is going to happen to me today? I know it's going to be all right, but, uh, please give me the strength to carry out what you would have me do. That's different from how it used to be when I would pray and I'd say, God, this is the game plan. Help me do this. If it doesn't work out, the next day I would come back and it wasn't, I'd, that I would blame God, I would say, well, I had the wrong game plan. Now, this is the new game plan. It's, and so you were continually looking for the game plan, but today I don't have to have a game plan. All I do is I show up, suit up, show up, and do the next right thing. And it works, and this program works. Or I should say it's workable, because you have to do certain things. But if you stay in the day, if you look at yesterday... You get, at least if I look at yesterday, I feel a lot of guilt. And if I look at tomorrow, I, I see a lot of, I'm, I see a lot of fear. I have a lot of fear. Guilt and fear are two things I don't, I don't handle too well. So I try to stay in the day. Or it's like if you go into a cemetery sometime and you look at the headstones. And what is on the headstone? It will have the name of the deceased. It'll have two dates, the date of birth, date of death. And in between there's a, there's a gap, about two or three inches. And that represents your life. When you look at it from that standpoint, that's all you got. We have no assurance of tomorrow. We only have today. And so life has to be a wonderful adventure. Helen Keller said it, and she said, life's either got to be a glorious adventure or it's nothing. And and uh, that's the way I feel today. Each day is an adventure, and I know that I'll be okay, and I know that God will take care of it. But I know I have to do certain things. I know I have to, as we talked about those first three steps, I have to work the steps on a regular basis. Right now we're going through a a workshop. I've done this for about seven or eight years, and uh, take taking some Al-Anon men and uh, going through the steps. And we use the big book. Well, in Al-Anon, the big book is is not conference-approved literature. and uh, But sometimes, you know, our fifth tradition of Al-Anon says that uh, the Al-Anon family groups, uh, their whole purpose is to help friends and families of alcoholics, and we do this by practicing the 12 steps of AA. And what better way to practice the 12 steps but out of the big book? And uh, one day my wife came home and she had been with her doctor and, and who's also in the program and they were arguing about her medical plan or something and she came home and she was mad at him and so I'm sitting there and I said, well, somewhere I read that if somebody does something or says something that upsets me, I have to look at myself. She looked at me and she says, you and your damn Al-Anon program. I said, that's not Al-Anon, that's out of the 12 and 12. 
And she said, you know, the worst thing AA ever did was to allow you Alans to read our literature. <laughs> so, in working those steps, I think, you know, this program is workable, but it's not only the working those first three steps, but it's going into writing the inventory and doing the fourth step, having honesty with yourself, and then going on to the fifth step and, and, and discussing that with someone else, and then going on from that to the to the sixth and seventh step, to have the willingness. The willingness, to, you know, we often say we're willing, but it's like sitting in a cow pod. And uh, it's like sitting there and it stinks, but it's warm and you know what it is. And so you don't want to get out. But you say you're willing. And in that in that sixth step, that's all we have to do to have these shortcomings removed is to be willing. But you have to do that on a daily basis. You have to be willing. And then in the, in the next step, not only you do you have the willingness, but you have to have the humility to ask. And it's difficult, especially for the male, the male ego, to, to humiliate. They, they, we get humiliation with humility mixed up. And there's no, in turning to God, there's no humiliation in it. It's a surrender and win situation rather than a surrender and lose situation. If you bring God into your life, all you do is surrender space. And God comes into your life and you surrender and will and win. And that's, that's the, to me, the secret of that particular step. And then you get into the amends. And you get the tremendous relief that comes from eight and nine. And doing those amends, it's like sitting in a jail cell, and you got the keys to get out of that jail cell, but you don't use them. You sit there with the keys, but all you have to do is to make that amend. And there comes so much freedom from making amends. And I used to think that it depended upon how what my part in it is. It doesn't really matter whose part in it. If you're part of a something that has happened and somebody's uncomfortable with it, you need to go make an amend for that. And there's another part of that amends that we sometimes forget about, and that's if if you is to stop doing the thing that caused that amend. If I step on your toe and come right back and step on your toe again after I've apologized, you kind of wonder what's wrong with me. And so when we make these amends, that's the other part of the amends is is to stop doing what you were doing, and then you get into ten, eleven, and twelve. And lots of times they call these the maintenance steps. I don't like that term maintenance because I want I want to go on to bigger and better things. I don't just want to maintain what I got. I want to move on to something greater. There's, it's an adventure. Life is an adventure. And the process is, is what's great about it. It's not the destination. I don't know where my destination is, but as long as that trip, the trip is what's fun. And in the 10, 11, and 12, you get the per- perseverance of the 10th step, and you're taking a daily inventory, and, and if you've done something, you promptly admit it and take care of it. You take care of it right then. You keep your inventory up to date. And then you get into the 11th step with his spirituality. To me, that's the greatest step of them all. When I went to the International in 1985, Lois Wilson was there, one of the founders of Al-Anon. And they built that, it was a Sunday morning meeting, and they had built it as the spiritual meeting. And when we sat there, I, I don't recall exactly what she said, but the one thing that struck me, she said, they have built this as the spiritual meeting. 
She says, isn't that what this program is all about? And I come back to that. The spirituality of, of the program is really what carries us. It's that feeling, we don't like to talk about religion, but unless you've found your higher power, you're never going to get into that 12th step, which is selflessness. Because you get out, there's a lot of paradoxes in this program, there's a lot of things that we don't understand. But by working these steps, and doing the things, and being ready, and, and willing, that the, the problem, both for the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic, is selfishness. And if we can get out of selfishness into selflessness, and we, we can then work the program, and this higher power will come into our life. i like to read you a little poem. It's called God. God is like Coke. It's the real thing. God is like bare aspirin. He works wonders. God is like Hallmark cards. He cares enough to send the very best. God is like VO hairspray. He works all kinds, he works in all kinds of weather. God is like dial soap. Aren't you glad you know him? Don't you wish everyone did? God is like scotch tape. You can't see him, but you know he's there. God is like an American Express card. Don't leave home without him. So thank you. I'd like to thank you all again for, for inviting me here to share my experience, strength, and hope. It's been a wonderful experience. It's always a good experience to meet old friends and meet new. I thank you for that and leave you with one thought that I hope for you all the good things in life, happiness, wealth, peace, all of those things. But best of all, I wish for you a special desire in your hearts to make this program an essential part of your lives. And if no one has told you today they love you, I love you. Thank you.